1: If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed.
0: Welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth radio show, LimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Today, welcome back to the program. A very unique and interesting guest. This is a person who I consider to be my PR mentor. This is an individual. He has represented 58 Academy Award winners. He's a best-selling author. A lot of his mannerisms and determination, I've I've, I've admired and try to adapt it into my own life. And he's also, one of his best books is called Broken Windows, Broken Business. And it's something that I think everyone should read. And a link to that book is called brokenwindowsbook.com. Please welcome the legendary Michael Levine. Michael, welcome back.
1: Hello, Ryan. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you so much for sharing your valuable audience
0: with me. Thank you. So one of the first things I wanted to bring to your attention is that you said something to me a few years ago that made a lot of sense. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was really powerful is when I asked you, I go, what does it mean for you to learn? How did you learn so much of your wisdom? And the one thing you said was pain. And I didn't realize it then, but a lot of the experiences that I've had in terms of business or personal growth have been from painful experiences. So can you please elaborate on that a little bit more and talk about how you've taken some of these opportunities where you know things have been hard and transformed them into powerful assets?
1: Yeah, I think, Ryan such an interesting question, perhaps, in this way. I think the audience might be advantaged by attempting to delineate the difference between learning and permanent learning. Now, maybe that's not the right word or the right phrase, but let's take a piece of paper and put a line down the center. On the left side, we write learning. And on the right side, we learn permanent or meaningful learning. Now, I would argue that in the course of our day, week, month, year, we learn a bunch of shit. We see a bunch of stuff. We learn a bunch of stuff, but it's very easily forgotten in the course of our day, week, month, life, distraction, et cetera. So we'll um, we'll date somebody uh, who doesn't return telephone calls promptly, and it won't work out. And then we'll say, you know, I don't think generally it's a good idea to date people who don't return telephone calls promptly because they're either too busy or flaky or who knows what. But then the next week or month, they meet a pretty boy or girl and they forget all about the lesson. So there's nothing permanent in it. And the permanence seems to come in my mind, the more significant learning seems to come when it's attached with rather significant pain. And so one of the uh, kind of tools or aphorisms that I use or, or share with people is the idea that in the end, people respect wisdom, but obey pain. And I'd love your audience if they would be willing to write that down. In the end, people respect wisdom, but obey pain. And so it is now for the audience if they choose to look at those words and to think about them and to think about their own lives. And I would ask them to consider not whether they think those words are comfortable or clever. They may may not be comfortable. They may not even be clever. But the question is not whether they're comfortable or clever. The question is whether they're true. And so it is and so it goes.
0: Okay, and when it comes to pain, what would you say would be the the most painful experience of your life that changed your perspective on business? And what can people learn from this experience that you had?
1: I don't know if there's any one. Listen, life is painful. Life is difficult. And in case your audience hasn't figured it out, though, I suspect they have, it is difficult for all of us. It is difficult for Ryan and it is difficult for Michael and it is difficult for everyone listening to this show. It's difficult for gay people and straight people and fat people and old people and young people and thin people and black people and white people. Life is difficult and it manifests its difficulty in many, many ways throughout our lives in a somewhat unrelenting manner, I might add. Um, And so it is, and so it goes. And uh, we have to figure out, um, first of all, knowing that life is difficult is a very important tool that I think our society uh, is very, very um, bereft of. If I were gonna give parents, current contemporary parents a letter grade, like a school teacher on how they have done as a group, not individually, in informing their young children that life is difficult, which I would think is among the most important things they can teach their young child at a young age and throughout their lives. If I were going if I were a school teacher and going to give co- contemporary parents a grade on how they've done in communicating that to their um, children, I would give them an F without hesitation. Uh, I think they've done a very poor job at informing their uh, children that life is difficult. And so when their child in young adulthood, comes upon difficulty, they're shocked. They, They can't quite understand. And they frequently turn to victimhood, which of course is a disastrous life logic. I have told people, audiences throughout this country and the world actually, that if you desire to either be broke or exhausted, and or frustrated, if any of those three things are your goal. I, I want to be broke, I, or all, I want to be broke, I want to be frustrated, and I want to be exhausted. The number one rule for attaining that those three goals is to think of yourself as a victim. And um, because parents have been so anemic, teaching children that life is difficult, perpetually, relentlessly difficult throughout their lives, for all of us, uh, I think a lot of young people are shocked and and upset and confused by the difficulties of life, uh, by growing up, frankly, which is
0: why so many of them don't. When you say the word victim, I'm. it seems that a victim is a virtue in this twisted society because as soon as somebody
1: that's right. It is so sick. We are so upside down. We are so ill that that is so many things, by the way, Ryan, you've, you've made such a great point. We are so sick. We are so suicidal in our urges. Uh, that we have turned the world upside down and language is a big revealer, a very, very big revealer. Uh, so it's almost, if you're not a victim of something today, it's almost like you lost, like w- what happened? I'm not, Great, good isn't it? at- yeah, it's, it's like victimhood is a prize on some level. It has a prestige to it. Everyone is supposed to be a victim of one thing or another whereas 40 years ago it was considered a disgrace and language is a big deal so i i love that you're bringing us to that topic you know how we refer to things and and the corruption of language is um is really fascinating telling disturbing um And the enemies of our society, though they may not think of themselves as the enemies, but they are, uh, first try to corrupt language. And uh, it's an interesting thing. So anyway.
0: Michael, I'll never forget, this is back in 2002, 2004. And that was when I was discovering your work. That's when I was first getting PR. And I think the, one of the reasons why I ultimately wanted to, to chose you to, to, to model a lot of my um, methodologies after is because I lo- saw a lot of people in the industry. And they were always out, like taking a lot of effort to tout themselves. They were mm-hmm. always kind of talking themselves up. Yeah. And you were the only person at the time that I can remember that wasn't doing that. And it's like you didn't have to do that. And I also love the fact that you, uh, you tended to be, you seemed to be a little pissed off and you were very intense and I respected that. So I'm well, curious. It depends, on that,
1: what, it depends on what you're pissed off about. Well, know.
0: no, it was just, it was just an intensity. I was, you always had, you always had this are tremendous of, intensity. Yeah, there
1: are, but it, it, From my perspective, there are a lot of things to be legitimately pissed off about. Hmm. And there's also a lot of nonsense to, that people are pissed off about that, that are nonsensical. It, it depends on what you're pissed off about.
0: Well, no, I'm just talking about the intensity. I love the. Th- I no. really back in those days, well, I, I, care, I, I always yeah. reacted that what I believe,
1: that- what I yeah, what I feel, I believe, and mm-hmm. and and that's a maybe a good thing, uh, perhaps. I think people are not nearly enough in touch with not only what they stand for, the consequences of our, what is going on in our society. I don't, maybe they're so distracted, they don't observe things the same way they could or should. Um, I've noticed something, for example, today in contemporary restaurants, you may have noticed the same thing. Very frequently in restaurants today, casual, like coffee shops of some type, we've gone from We've gone to a place now where very often we're our own cashier, right? We're expected to stick our credit card in the um, little portal. So now we're our own cashier. And for the luxury of being our own cashier for a $4 cup of coffee, we are... Induced, I guess, could be a a term, to tip. And, And there is a feeling among some that to not tip, even though you're your own cashier, is somehow to be a mean, awful, uncaring person. Well, this, uh, now, I think if you observe this, this is a frequent American experience. You go to a coffee shop, you order a cup of coffee, you pay for it, and then some people tip. Well, I think if we look at that and we say, well, what signals is this sending to the society at large? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? First of all, it's important to notice that it's a change thing. You know, 25 years ago, if your father or my father went to a coffee shop to buy coffee, he wouldn't be his own cashier. And uh, he wouldn't have necessarily felt guilty about tipping for a cup of coffee or something. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it strikes me as if I know, we must pay attention to these things it's, or it's, we should.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's a little strange, but um, just coming back to one thing, You're in an an industry where they have so many other people that are very competitive, that other people are doing PR. And I'm thinking about other people that have businesses. What are three things that you think that you did to rise to the top? What are some of the things that people can do in order to be the best within their industry?
1: Well, the first thing I would tell people, whatever their industry, and I know that lots of people are listening to us in different parts of the world, which I respect very much. The first thing I would tell them is that my observations of life are this, and I would ask them to write it down too. Um, It is impossible to win the game if you play it merely nine to five. You cannot win the game nine to five. You can play the game nine to five, but you can't win it nine to five. You can play it, but you can't win it. You win the game in quadrants of time, generally referred to as nights and weekends. And so what I have suggested to to many, to a lot of people is that if you're willing, for whatever reason, to donate no less than four hours a week. In addition to your nine to five work, if on the weekends you're willing to put four hours forward at a minimum, and I would divide the four hours into two hours of catching up. Things never seem to get the time to do and 2 hours devoted to planning if you'll do nothing more than that and you'll do it generally speaking in silence and in focus not with your phone on not texting your girlfriend not playing with the dog not uh, you know kids and TVs and netflix and all of that but four concentrated hours per weekend or night, divided in half, two to catch up, two to forward plan. First of all, when you arrive on Monday morning at 9 a.m., you will be four hours, literally four hours ahead of your competition. However, Because you're doing it on the weekend in a concentrated, quiet, focused environment, those four hours will have an effective use of eight hours. And so you will not, in fact, be four hours ahead of your competitor. You'll be eight hours ahead of your competitor. Now, if you do it week number two, that eight, Will turn to 16. And then if you do it week number three and week number four and week number five, I think you can quickly see the exponential advantage you're going to have over your competitors. Many who are going to come to work on Monday morning with a really good size hangover. <laughs>
0: I love it. I love it. And you, you always have this one quote. I, I think about it quite frequently. You say that uh, those who work eight hours a week should not deserve to come home with more bread than those who work twenty hours a week. I mean, we're relating to that, saying that the harder you work, the longer time you put into. You well, I out. yeah, I you know, at my core,
1: now remember, I'm I'm an American. I was born in America. America has been very, very good to me. I believe that the advantages of capitalism far, far exceed the advantages of whatever system you want, socialism or whatever is in contemporary um, vogue right now. However, I do believe that capitalism, which I am a huge proponent of, needs some modest minimal, but, but firm, but minimal regulation. Because if you let capitalists run crazy without any regulation, they'll run crazy. People will run crazy. It's not capitalists. If you allow people to do whatever they want with no regulation, they'll run wild. Now, the question for our society is how much regulation? And the answer is, I don't know. But as little as possible, because every time you regulate something, you restrict innovation, freedom, and so forth. And you, it comes at a cost. It all sounds great. You know, we're going through this period right now in which President Biden has made a decision to give $10,000 of money to people who took out loans for, for college. Well, in addition to that being a terribly effective way of buying votes with other people's money, a extraordinarily successful strategy of the Democratic Party, um, I, I, I don't know that it's good for a lot of things. I mean, it's great for the colleges, that we know, and it's great for Joe, uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats because it appears that they're giving out free cookies. But is it good for our society? Is it good for, and one can argue, free things generally are not good for the human being. Uh-huh. Now, there is some exception, obviously, I'm not an idiot, uh, I, I don't want, there should be free elementary school education in America. Of course there should be. There should be, uh, you know, some services that a society should provide in, in, in exchange for the taxes they pay, the roads and so forth and so on. But when you start giving people free things, they start come to expect it. It's part of human nature.
0: So there we are. Yeah, I I always feel that um, it's probably having a negative effect. And Michael, if time for for two more questions. And one of the ones I want to touch upon is your book, Broken Windows, Broken Business. Because when I read this book, it it had a clear impact on um, my business because you were talking about how these small little things are an indication of a problem to come. And one thing I'm pretty adamant about My business is emails and making sure that every email is formatted a certain way that it looks consistent. The font is that particular way. And I, I actually got that when I took away from your book because I want everything, every time somebody has an experience with my business at the micro level, they need to know it is tip top shape because to show any kind of kinks in there could make them think that there's something else at play. Can you please uh, elaborate on that a little bit more and talk about some of the other key lessons from your book? Well,
1: I think you've elaborated on it almost better than I could. Little details matter. And the reason they matter is kind of simple or interesting. I don't know if it's simple. Maybe it is. It's interesting. Everybody listening to this show has a human mind, a human brain. In it... There is a center or a side, if you will, that is logic-driven, and there is a side that's emotionally driven. This is often referred to uh, in contemporary terms as the left brain and the right brain. Now, the truth is we we all have both sides, but some of us are more dominant. And so if you met met 100 accountants, you would say that, generally speaking, those 100 are dominated by the left side of their brain. Their brain, the left side, the logical side of their brain is more dominant. Now, they do have a right side to their brain, but it's not as dominant. Now, if we interviewed 100 poets, you'd find that those people generally have a more right brain dominant side, not that they don't have any left brain. but And so the interesting feature of human behavior is that this these two sides of our brain that are located in every brain, yours and mine, and your mother, your brother, your sister, your father, your doorman, your, your lover, your cousin, they're they they are engaged in a daily, sometimes hourly arm wrestle between logic and emotion. And that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, Logic and emotion are arm wrestling in your head all the bloody time. It certainly is helpful to know that. And um, about 80% of the time, Emotion wins. And so we go into a car dealer and we ask for a car that's really good on gas, which is a logical thing, because gas is very expensive. But we end up buying a car very frequently that has a cup holder that we really like and fits the size of our favorite drink. Now, that's not a very logical way of buying a car, and yet it happens. And so when we screw up little details as business owners, when we screw up little details as business owners, what we're doing is we're sending a psychic signal to our brain that bigger things are probably just as screwed up. So we go into a bathroom in a restaurant. We see a dirty bathroom. And it sends a psychic signal to our brain that, you know what, Ryan, I don't think this kitchen's too clean. We go onto an airplane. We pull that coffee tray down. There's a coffee stain on the tray. It's unclean. It sends a psychic signal to our brain that just perhaps... The engine maintenance of the airplane isn't done very well. And that is the theory of broken windows.
0: So, yeah, I think it's a book that everyone should read. And uh, Michael, final question I have for you is you are somebody that has worked with 58 Academy Award winners. Of all yeah. these celebrities that you have worked with, yes. what what two were the um, most professional and what two celebrities taught you the most about business and life?
1: Well, all of my clients, and and I've represented far more than, uh, you know, Grammy award winners and Academy award winners and New York times bestsellers. Those are very, very famous people. And I've learned a lot from them, but I've learned a lot from all of my clients and many of my clients are not Academy award winners. And I've learned a lot. Uh, I will say this, that my first major Academy Award winning star when I began very, very, very long time ago was an actor named Charlton Heston. And Charlton Heston did teach me a great deal. Um, Now I was very young and impressionable and he was a magnificently uh, iconic Hollywood celebrity. And he taught me a lot about manners and about uh, dignity and about kindness, and about the power of writing a thank you note and, not, and being humble. And uh, so there we are. That, that, that one comes to mind. But I've learned from all my clients. I learned from life. You know, Ryan, I'm going to close with this. And I'm going to share this with your audience if you'll allow me. Ladies and and gentlemen (laughs) of Ryan's Great Show, I have had a very blessed career, had much, much, much more success than I could have ever envisioned. I barely graduated high school. I've been invited. uh, I'm told I'm the only person ever invited to Harvard and Oxford simultaneously that never went to a day of college to speak. So I've had some great success, unexpected. And here's what I want the audience to consider. Ladies and gentlemen, I am not very bright. However, I'm above average at watching what bright people do. And that has been damn helpful. Further, I'm even better at watching what dumb people do. and Son of a bitch, that's been even more helpful. (laughs) So your path to your finest self can be advantaged by watching what bright people do and watching what dumb people do. And as a general rule, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, friends, children of the night, don't do the dumb stuff. And do some of the good stuff. Uh, It's really remarkable. I meet young people very often. I speak uh, mostly post-COVID. I speak at... uh, Entrepreneurial events with young people in their 30s. And invariably at the end of the speech, a young person will, many young people will come up to me and say, Oh, Mr. Levine, I loved your talk. I really enjoyed it greatly. And I'll talk to them for five or 10 minutes about their life and about their career and about their journey and about their dreams. And I'll say, You know, you are. A very bright and intriguing person. I'd like to stay in touch with you if you wouldn't mind. Give me your business card. And 99% of the time, people in their 30s at a business convention will say to me, oh, oh, oh. They like saying, oh my God, a lot. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> I don't have a business card. I lost my business card. i It's in my car. I don't print them. Um, let me uh, bump your phone or something stupid. And I say, son, young lady, that's a dopey plan. Business cards are cheap. Get a business card. And by the way, to prove my point, If we met 500 of the 500 Fortune 500 corporate heads, right? If somehow 500 of 500 Fortune Fortune 500 corporate heads were gathered in a room, and we said to each of them, "Give me your business card. How much do you want to bet that the 500 would have one?" So there we are, Ryan a wacky lesson maybe for people to consider.
0: A lot of lessons. Michael Levine, thank you so much for being with us today. Again, Michael is a legendary PR executive. He's uh, known by many as one of the best publicists that has ever existed, and, and, and that is no BS. And uh, Larry King said that. A bunch of other people have said that. He's also the author, I believe, 19 different books, but the one we wanted to talk about today was Broken Windows, Broken Business. A little more about Michael by going to brokenwindowsbook.com. Michael, thank you so much. And thank you for all the valuable uh, lessons you've taught me over the years and for your friendship. Thank you,
1: Ryan, for sharing your valuable audience and for taking this podcast to the extraordinary level you've taken it. It's a lot of determination and uh, I'm
0: very proud of you. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Love and beers. Take good care and thank you so much for listening.